And welcome to episode 48 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, The Right Reason Podcast. And I am your host, Glenn Peoples. Well, if you remember back in episode 47, I say back in episode 47 as though it were a long time ago. In episode 47, uh, I started basically reenacting a speaking tour that I did uh, up in the northern part of the North Island earlier this year. And I'm going to be continuing that. Uh, in episode 48. So episode 47 was an introduction to faith and reason. I was basically trying to introduce the audience to uh, the idea of doing Christian apologetics. And episode 48 takes that one step further. It says, okay, so now we've looked at uh, the idea that faith shouldn't be seen as something in the absence of reason, and that reason is an integral aspect of the Christian faith. And we say, okay, so what's one of the ways that we use reason to defend what we believe as Christians? And so in this episode, I'm going to be looking at the moral argument for the existence of God. So it isn't isn't specifically an argument for the Christian faith. It doesn't mention uh, the person of Jesus or the historical uh, details of his life, death, and resurrection. But it's something that is a necessary precondition for the truth of Christianity, namely the existence of God. Now, I know that in the podcast uh, many years ago now, I suppose, I did a, I think it was a two-part series on the moral argument for theism. So I have discussed it before, but this presentation is sufficiently different and it's more succinct. So I thought, yeah, I'll throw it in here. I think maybe it'll be of use to you. For what it's worth, I like the presentation. (laughs) Maybe you will too. But this is how it went down. Have you ever heard of the Seven Deadly Sins? It was a movie some years ago now called Seven, starring Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman, where there was this serial killer who carried out gruesome murders. Each one was based on one of the Seven Deadly Sins. Now, Back in the 6th century, Pope Gregory I wrote what, as far as I am able to tell, was, was the first list of the seven deadly sins, or capital sins, meaning head sins, because from them flow all other sins. So it's kind of like, this is a list of the root sins, all other sins are derived somehow from these. And this is that list, lust, gratin... Gluttony, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. Now, Christianity has always had a problem with sin. And I don't mean because all Christians do it. We are uh, unsurprisingly reminded of that often enough. 
Christianity in principle says that sin is bad and we shouldn't do it. In fact, in one sense, sin just means doing the things that we shouldn't do. And often enough, Christianity, especially conservative Christianity with a strong emphasis on obeying God's commands, is condemned and lampooned for being judgmental. Now, for what it's worth, I think we have to be careful about being judgmental. Not that it's always wrong, but we have to be prudent, wise, and careful about it. But now, I put it to you that the idea of seven deadly sins, well, of of deadly sins, maybe not seven, really hasn't gone anywhere, and neither has moral judgmentalism. How about this list? Homophobia, racism, sexism, pollution of the environment, smoking, introducing genetically modified organisms into the ecosystem, especially heinous here in New Zealand, greed, bigotry, oppression, corruption, fundamentalism, violating human rights, opposing women's choice, and the list could probably go on. You could add to it. These are the seven deadly sins of the modern, liberal, supposedly enlightened age in which we live. Now, you might hear some of those things and say, well, wait a minute, I think that really is wrong. Corruption, oppression. Look, I agree. Um, My point is, enlisting these things is not that I don't really think they're wrong. My point is just, and here it comes, we live in a double-minded world. On the one hand, we've got a point of view that arose in popular culture in the mid to late 20th century, that moral judgmentalism is something that we should avoid. Dogmatism is bad. Indeed, we're told that one of the things that's not so great about religion is that it points the finger at sinners. Postmodernism was becoming all the rage, throwing off traditional ways of thinking about morality, and relativism became the new big thing. Now, as you may know, relativism is that view that comes in a couple of forms, but the idea, basically, is that there's no objective truth about what's right or wrong in moral terms. You've got your perspective, and I've got my perspective, and it really is just a matter of perspective. And so what's right for you might not be right for me. Now, that would be a very individualistic form of relativism, which is called subjectivism. Perhaps more popular in an age where in the university in particular, we're very careful about being culturally sensitive, the form of relativism that is most prominent is what's called conventionalism. Now, this view, conventionalism, whether or not whether that name was used or not, became hugely popular with anthropologists who study cultures in the early 20th century, partly because of the work of William Sumner. And the idea is that one culture has its way of doing things, and another culture has their way of doing things, and our culture has our way, but we have no right to say that another culture is less morally good than another. And we especially have no right to say that another culture is morally inferior to ours. I've heard it called the Star Trek morality. They observe cultures but do not intervene, for that is their way. Um, And so we can't impose our standards upon them, we're told. Unless, of course, we discover a culture that has the cultural practice of judging other cultures, then our, our head kind of explodes. But perhaps on the same side of the fence in this twofold division, this time in academic philosophy, there was a thing called 
logical positivism. Now, logical positivism is a movement that arose, or at least became popular in Vienna in the mid-20th century. A group of philosophers called the uh, Vienna Circle. One, maybe the most prominent of these in the English-speaking world anyway, was A.J. Ayer. And logical positivism was not primarily about the quest for truth, about morality or anything else. It was about the quest for meaning. And so logical positivism set about saying, look, what is it, among among all the possible things that you can affirm, all the things that you can say, what are the things that count as genuinely meaningful judgments? And what are the kinds of things that count as just nonsense, you know, not even having any meaning, you know, just a meaningless collection of sounds? And they decided that in order for a proposition to be a proposition, that is, in order for something to count as a proposition, to genuinely convey meaning, then there were a a couple of ways of going about it. Maybe it was something that was true as a matter of definition. So it was an analytic truth. So squares have four sides. You You don't have to go out into the world and check all the squares to make sure they've got four sides. If you know what a square means, then you know that all squares have four sides. So that's meaningful. The second category of things that count as meaningful propositions, according to logical positivism, was the principle of verifiability, scientific verifiability. So they would ask the question, is there a possible set of circumstances under which I could verify whether or not this proposition is is true? And if it's not verifiable, and if it's not true as a matter of definition, then it's not even false. It's just nonsense. It has no meaning. And so one of the consequences of this way of thinking, so the proponents of logical positivism maintained, was that moral judgments have no meaning. It's meaningless to talk about something being objectively morally right or wrong, because moral properties are not the kinds of things that whose existence you can verify via the natural sciences, nor are moral claims simply matters of definition. Is a certain method of taxation morally right or wrong? Well, you can't tell just because you know the meanings of all the terms involved. It involves weighing up Uh, what's called synthetic judgments, not analytic judgments. These are not just statements of definition. And so it follows that logical, sorry, moral claims are all meaningless. They don't mean anything at all. And so you've got relativism that undermines the, the idea that there could be any such thing as objective moral truths. And you've got logical positivism which laughs at the idea that there could be any such thing as moral truth because you, you, you can't have a true claim if you don't even have a meaningful claim. And as a result of the declining belief in objective moral truth, the idea that you could argue for the existence of God on the basis of objective moral truth suffered along with it because as people stop believing that there are such moral truths, well, there's nothing to explain. We don't have to explain how there could be moral facts because there are none. So that's one half 
of the moral, sorry, of the modern world. But as I said, there is a double-mindedness in our culture, and this is due in part to ignorance. A lot of people have inherited the relativism of the late 20th century, but really don't know much or maybe anything about the intellectual movement within moral philosophy. I want you to consider again logical positivism. So logical positivism takes as its central claim, or at least an indispensable claim, this statement. If a statement isn't true by definition or scientifically verifiable, then it has no meaning. All right, so this is intended to apply to all candidates for real statements. But the problem is this is meant to be a statement about meaning. And so if it's a true statement, then it has to apply to itself. If a statement isn't true by definition or scientifically verifiable, it has no meaning. Is that true by definition? Well, plainly not. Is it scientifically verifiable? No, it's not actually. And so by its own lights, it has no meaning. Logical positivism itself becomes absolutely meaningless. And in, indeed, in the world, of philosophical ethics, this has largely been realized. Real ethics are very much back on the table. Now, the moral values that some people espouse might not be the same as those espoused maybe a hundred years ago, but the solid conviction that there are some things that it is objectively wrong to do, and some things that it is objectively right to do, as I think we saw with the list of the modern deadly sins, is very much alive and well. And this provides philosophers of religion, I guess maybe just religious people more generally, it provides us with an opportunity because it, it opens up the question of the relationship between God and morality. And one of the well-known arguments for God's existence is the moral argument. And that's what I'm looking at in this talk. I'm going to walk through a version of that argument. One of my favorite philosophers, not because I always agree with him, was John Locke. Sometimes I tell people that. I tell them that I really like John Locke. And they say, oh yeah, me too. I just love Lost. And a part of me dies. I've never watched an episode of Lost, incidentally. Now, John Locke. In the 17th century, Locke gave what I think is the shortest ever summary of the moral argument. And it went like this, and I quote, since God shows himself to us as present everywhere and, as it were, forces himself upon the eyes of men, as much in the fixed course of nature now as by the frequent evidence of miracles in time past, I assume that there will be no one to deny the existence of God, provided he recognizes either the necessity for some rational account of life or that there is a thing that deserves to be called virtue or vice. Now, actually, Locke refers to a few different arguments here. He talks about the evidence from design and function in the universe, the evidence from miracles, an argument from the meaningfulness of our life. But right at the end there, he refers to the moral argument. He assumes that nobody will deny that God exists, provided we recognize that there really are things that deserve to be called virtue and vice, right and wrong. His argument, which is implied, goes like this. If God did not exist, then nothing would really deserve to be called virtue 
or vice. But we recognize that many things do deserve to be called virtue or vice, and therefore God does exist. Now, in more recent versions of the argument, it looks like this. Premise number one, if God does not exist, then objective moral facts and duties do not exist. But objective moral facts and duties do exist, and so therefore it follows deductively, God exists. Now, the argument sometimes provokes a rather offended reaction. Are you saying that atheists are bad people? I remember the first time I ever presented the moral argument publicly, and I got, I don't know if she was genuinely upset or just feigning it, but I got a rather agitated response from somebody right at the back, saying, are you really saying that unless we believe in God, we don't know what's right and wrong? No, of course nobody would say that, or no one should say that anyway. Some atheists are better people than some Christians. That's not the point. You know, some Christians are pretty, pretty lousy. I can be pretty lousy. The point is not that you have to believe in God to know anything about right and wrong or to do anything right and to avoid doing wrong. Instead, the claim is that there wouldn't be any such thing as objective rightness and wrongness unless God existed. So ob- objective here, people sometimes ask, what do you mean objective? Objective here means factual and transcendent, not relative or subjective. It's true regardless of what any of us thinks or likes. Does ice cream taste good? Well, that's subjective because it depends on what you like. Is Tokyo north of Wellington, New Zealand? Now, we don't answer that with our tastes or desires, nor do we think it's just a matter of opinion. There is an objective truth of the matter. Yes, Tokyo is north of Wellington. It doesn't matter what you say or what your community, religion, or social group says because it's a matter of fact. Now, I've developed a version of this argument that I think spells this out pretty clearly, and it goes like this. Premise number one, moral facts are either natural or non-natural. Premise number two, moral facts are not natural. Premise number three, moral facts are non-natural. Premise number four, the best way to think of a non-natural basis of moral facts is in terms of a non-natural person who brings moral facts about. And number five, therefore, moral facts, if they exist, are brought about by a non-natural person. All right, so there's the argument. Now, for some people, that seems kind of abstract, a bit dry. Um, So what what does all that mean? Well, let's walk through the premises now, and I'll try and put some flesh on the bones and make it sound a bit more human. So, premise number one. Moral facts are either natural or non-natural. Now, that has to be true. In fact, it's true, I guess it's true by definition, because here I mean by natural and non-natural, I mean those two categories to cover off every possibility. So there are natural facts, which are facts about the universe. Here I just mean physical facts, weight, height, color, all, all that sort of stuff magnetic fields and there are non-natural facts things like mathematical truths or logical uh, logical truths these things are well they're not natural they're not facts about about physical objects they're propositions 
Okay, so moral facts are either natural or non-natural. And incidentally, even if you don't believe there are any non-natural facts, you still believe that moral facts are either natural or non-natural. Okay, secondly, moral facts are not natural. Now, this, this may elicit some controversy. Natural facts are facts about what is. They tell us what things are like, what things have been in the past, and what they will be in the future. They include facts about what causes pain, but they don't tell us whether or not we should cause pain. They include facts about what cures disease, but they don't tell us whether or not we ought to cure disease. They include facts about what we should do in order to promote the health and happiness of others, but they do not tell us whether or not we should promote the health and happiness of others. And so when we step from statements like, you are helping others, into statements like, you should be helping others, then we're doing something very different. We're no longer simply describing natural states of affairs. So moral facts are not natural. Premise number three, which is really the conclusion of premises one and true, and it follows deductively, therefore moral facts are not natural. Sorry, moral facts are non-natural, which really just means not natural. Okay, so moral facts are non-natural. The best way to think of a non-natural basis of moral facts is in terms of a non-natural person who brings moral facts about. That's premise four. This, I think, probably generates the most controversy. The best way to think of a non-natural basis of moral facts is in terms of a non-natural person who brings moral facts about. Now, other people have spoken about this in different ways than the way that I do. For example, Robert Adams describes moral obligation as having the features of social obligation more generally, where the obligations that we have are obligations to other persons, and we're guilty before those persons if we don't meet those obligations. And an important feature of social obligations is that whether or not they should motivate us is in part based on an assessment of the obligation that is laid on us. And if moral obligations are, are objective or transcendent, existing independent of human social mores or personal preference, then that assessment has to be done from a personal yet transcendent perspective, which is God's perspective. Now, I've unpacked this a little bit more back in episode 40 where I discuss Adams' view, but that's not the line of reasoning that I'm going to use here. Remember how I said that natural facts are really just facts about the way that things are and not the way that things should be? Now, the same is actually true of most non-natural facts. Take a law of logic like the law of identity. A equals A. For every A, it is A. Whether or not it ought to be A or has some sort of duty to be A, that doesn't even make sense. It just is A. Think of mathematical facts. 6 times 5 equals 30. Well, is 6 times 5 required to equal 30? Would we disapprove if 6 times 5 one day didn't equal 30? Again, it just doesn't make sense. Moral facts are not like that. Moral facts have an intentional nature to them. They involve a judgment. It is wrong to cheat on your wife. Actually calls us to do something, or in this case, not do something. It's a forward-looking statement, not just about what we have done, but about what we're called to do, or in this case, not do in the future. And so there's, a, there's an obvious analogy here with commands. 
Morality, for want of a better word, wants us to do things or not do them. But things like logical laws or mathematical truths or abstract objects, these things don't call people or want people to do things, and they certainly can't command people. Those are all things that people do. And so if anything wants, commands, calls people to do things, then that thing sounds very much like a person. And the conclusion, therefore, moral facts, if they exist, are brought about by a non-natural person. If God exists, then there exists a person who stands above the natural world and who places requirements on us. But if God does not exist, then there is no such person. Unless you decide to say that this person is really just a great angel or spirit, in which case you really end up just talking about God by another name. So the existence of moral facts would serve as a good reason to believe that God exists. In fact, there, there, are, there are what I call hostile witnesses for the moral argument. Now, a hostile witness is a witness in court who really is supporting the other side, but the testimony they give ends up supporting your side. In other words, they would have no good reason to offer that testimony because it doesn't help them at all. And so therefore that testimony becomes more plausible, more believable as a result because they're not motivated to lie. And there are hostile witnesses for the moral argument. You can get away from the moral argument by saying that actually there are no moral facts. I had the pleasure of, of discussing the moral argument with British philosophy professor Stephen Law on the unbelievable radio show with Justin Briley. And to my amazement, I say amazement, but the reality is I've seen it so many times, I'm not amazed anymore. To what should have been my amazement, in response to the moral argument, his sheer determination showed through when he said, in effect, that he would rather give up believing in any moral facts at all than start believing in a God who was responsible for them. Now, Stephen Law isn't an ethicist specifically, but a number of specialists in ethics who are atheists have taken this step. They've acknowledged that in a purely natural world, such as the world they think they inhabit, there are no objective moral duties at all. Richard Joyce, in his work The Evolution of Morality, observes that in a natural outlook, a naturalistic outlook, the fact that it was good for our ancestors in terms of survival and passing on their genes to have belief-forming tendencies to form beliefs that we now regard as moral beliefs says absolutely nothing in favor of the truth of those beliefs. We kept those tendencies not because they produced true beliefs, but only because they were useful. This doesn't show that the beliefs are false, but it does suggest that perhaps we have no reason to believe them. He acknowledges that you can still say that there are moral facts anyway, provided you can make room for them in a naturalistic view of reality. In the same way, he adds, and I quote, he's being a bit sarcastic, I think, one might claim that talk of ghosts could be vindicated if it could be shown that ghostly properties may be comfortably integrated within a naturalistic worldview. Perhaps not surprisingly, Joyce wrote another book called The Myth, of morality, in which he argues at length that while it's useful to talk about moral beliefs as though they are true, in reality they are fictions. So long as we believe that 
the natural world is all that exists. He simply finds himself with no other choice. Michael Ruse, the eminently likable and memorable Michael Ruse. I love this quote because it's so honest. He says, and I quote, Morality is a biological adaptation no less than our hands and feet and teeth. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction and has no being beyond or without this. Morality is an ephemeral product of the evolutionary process, just as our other adaptations and any deeper meaning is illusory. End quote. So why do we all seem to find ourselves with moral beliefs then, if Ruse is correct? What brings them about? Well, here Ruse takes the same approach as Joyce. He says we hold them because of a common evolutionary heritage and our inclination to believe them has got nothing to do with whether or not they are true. So in other words, explaining the origins of morality by appealing to the evolutionary development of moral beliefs because of their usefulness is not to explain the basis of moral facts. It is to explain away our moral beliefs as not requiring any basis in fact. Now Richard Joyce and Michael Ruse are right and wrong. They're absolutely right about where their naturalistic view of reality leaves them in terms of morality, but they're wrong to persist in their naturalistic worldview anyway. Interestingly, I find it interesting, and so should you. Interestingly, some atheists and their desire to show that morality has nothing to do with God, although they mistakenly talk about morality coming from religion, argue that this can't really be the case. It really can't be the case that morality comes from God or from religion because there's so much moral diversity. Moral beliefs differ radically, perhaps even completely, from one culture to the next, so we really can't appeal to this mythical notion of moral truth that we're all aware of. At the same time, other atheists, for example, Peter Singer and Mark Hauser, in an article called Why Morality Doesn't Need Religion, make the basic mistake of thinking that the moral argument is meant to show you that you need religious beliefs in order to know about morality. But based on survey and study results, to return to the point here, they tell us we know that this isn't true because, and I quote, moral attitudes and practices appear more universal than one would expect given the sharp doctrinal differences between the world's major religions. Even when we compare religious cultures as a whole with more secular ones like ancient China, where philosophical outlooks such as Confucianism may have been more influential than religious beliefs, we find significant common elements in morality across these distinct cultures. How can this be explained? Now, end quote, by the way. <laughs> The moral argument doesn't say that our moral knowledge comes from our knowledge of any given religion. So this is ignorance. This is a misunderstanding on the part of Singer and Hauser. But at least they're on my side, or our side, I should say, more, more kindly. At least they're on our side on the more important issue. 
when people challenge the moral argument on the grounds that there really is no universal moral law, which is evidenced by the moral diversity from one culture to the next, one response to this, and it's an effective response, is to point out, as Singer and Hauser do, that we mustn't exaggerate this diversity. We agree far more than we disagree on the content of morality, which is precisely what we should expect if morality is part of the way that we were created, if it reflects something of our creator. And here is where push comes to shove. I think we live in a world where there are moral facts. People who fly planes full of people into buildings full of people, which then collapse onto streets full of people, or to be fair, who drop nuclear bombs onto cities full of people, are not just getting in the way of what is useful. These things are not just violations of social taboos or inefficiencies or impracticalities. They are moral abominations, which no person should ever commit, and which every person who commits them is objectively guilty of wrongdoing. And if your partner in discussion is willing to dig his heels in, retreat all the way into madness, and declare that murder, rape, terrorism, torture, mass killings, and child abuse are not objectively wrong, then there is no way to beat them into intellectual submission. It's like arguing with a person who declares that other minds do not exist. Can you beat them over their head until they agree that they're wrong? No. But also remember, and this is really the point if we're talking about apologetics, the public defense of the faith, it isn't your job to change people's minds. And the reason it's not your job is because it's not even within your power. Very often, if you're unfortunate enough to get into an argument, nobody is willing to, right then and there, concede even one inch of territory. Look, that's fine. That's to be expected. It's what animals like us do. I know for myself that when I've changed my mind in response to another person's argument, it wasn't right then and there. It was after I was thinking about it in bed that night or the next night and reflecting on it over the next few days and giving myself time to get used to the idea and then maybe sort of over a little while getting a feel for this new idea, eventually adopting it, maybe, sometimes. And what's more, often there are more than two parties to a conversation, especially conversations like this. It's like flies, flies around a dog poo. <laughs> you know, there are spectators. There are people who want to be close to hear what's going on. You want to get the attention of those who are listening when the other person says, sure, I accept that if God doesn't exist, then there are no moral facts. And so I accept that there are no moral facts. Because the truth is, most normal, healthy, functional people, not philosophers, they know full well that right and wrong are not illusory. And when they see people who are willing to defend their cause of unbelief by making claims like that, it gives them pause. Be careful how you explain this. Be careful. Look, I've been really, I mean, I've been embarrassed in the past. I remember it was, I, I believe it was right after the Columbine school shootings. I forget which year it was. It was some years ago now. But it was terrible. You know, the news was coming out about, about kids and teachers being barricaded in classrooms while these guys went through the school with guns, murdering people. And it was terrible. It was horrifying. And yet, before the bodies were warm, 
other way around, while the bodies were still warm, as it were, on internet discussion boards, I was embarrassed to be a Christian by what I saw. When there were Christians trying, trying in a sort of ham-fisted, horribly aggressive way to make the moral argument by saying to non-Christians, atheists, they were saying things like, you've got no basis on which, on what, on which to object to what has just happened. You have no grounds for disapproving of this killing. Look, what a jerk. I don't ever want to hear anybody say that. Don't, don't do that. And don't ever imply that people who are unbelievers, who don't believe in God, have no reason to condemn things like the Boston bombing or 9-11 or school shootings or what have you. Of course they've got reasons. It's called empathy. And they actually do love some people. And when people get killed, they're sad. I mean, don't treat them like idiots or monsters when you do this. You have to be, you have to be reasonable. You have to be gracious in the way that you explain what you're saying. The point is just this. If God does not exist, then there are many things that morality might be. It might just be a matter of individual psychology, differing from one person to the next, so that morality is just what a person endorses. It might be more of a communal affair, where societies or their representatives just decide that this is the way we do things around here. Anyone who breaks with their culture is really just an innovator, going against the established norm. Or maybe morality is something that serves a purpose, moves us forward as a species towards prolonging our lives and passing on our genes. But whatever the case, if God does not exist, if atheism is true, if the natural world is all there is, there are no objective moral values and duties. People who violate moral conventions aren't doing anything wrong. They're only doing things that are contrary to norms that we decided on. And if they manage to get away with it, then what of it? Lucky them. By contrast, if God exists, and it's no secret I am a Christian, if the God who is revealed to us in Jesus of Nazareth really exists, if he's real, then there exists an objective foundation for moral value and duty. We were made to live in a way that reflects the goodness of our maker. It's possible to violate that purpose. We can screw it up and get things wrong. That's possible. God is not just a member of, of a society with limited perspective, people who take a vote. God is perfectly just, wise, and all-knowing. He knows why we are here, because he made us. He made the universe that we inhabit. He knows the consequences of living us of living as he calls us to live, because he knows all things. So his perspective is objective, transcendent, not limited or subjective. And we can be confident that living the way that God calls us to live is good for us, because God is good and God is love. And so when we say with the writer of Ecclesiastes that the whole duty of humanity is to fear God and to obey God's commands, then we can have confidence that if this being exists, then we have the resources to account for objective morality. What's more, our experience of those moral facts can actually tell us what this God is like. You see, one of the features of moral facts, in fact, one of the features that moral philosophers puzzled over, 
is the motivational nature of moral facts. Michael Smith, the meta-ethicist, wrote a book called The Moral Problem, which was written solely to address this problem. How can there be these facts that are just brute facts, and yet they automatically have this motivating effect on us? But the fact is, they do have a motivating effect on us. When we say that we've come to a moral realization, we're not just dispassionately talking about data that we've analyzed. We're saying that we've come to realize that there is something that we should do. We find ourselves motivated to do it. And in being so motivated, if we come to the realization that there is a person behind these moral demands, then the nature of the demands, which we know about because we are motivated to do them, tells us what the person is like. And in fact, we do see that being kind, being good to others, loving others, is morally right. That is what the moral law requires of us. And things like oppression, cruelty, dishonesty are morally wrong. Those are the things that God does not want us to do because they do not reflect God's character. This realization can be pretty powerful, actually, when we realize what, or number one, that the basis of morality is personal, and number two, what the nature of the basis of morality is like. You may or may not be familiar with with a lady by the name of Leah Libresco. Now, Leah Libresco was an atheist for, I guess, quite some time, uh, very interested in ethics, uh, a philosopher, a philosophy graduate, and she did a lot of blogging uh, on God and morality and philosophy, and she still does, but she is no longer an atheist. She is now a Christian. And things really came to a head because what she would do, and, you know, I wasn't, I don't claim that I was a follower of her blogging, but what she describes herself as doing is she would corner other philosophers and their moral theories and challenge them to give an account of moral realism. How do you account for moral truths and for those truths being the way that you say they are? Until one of her Christian friends did it to her. Yeah. Okay. You can, you can make all these criticisms, but you, at the end of the day, you are still an atheist. And how do you account for morality being what it is and the way that it is? And her response, and I'm quoting now from her version of events, I don't know, I said. I've got bupkis, your best guess. I haven't got one. You must have some idea. I don't know. I've got nothing. I guess morality just loves me or something. There's a long pause there. And then she says, okay, okay, yes, I heard what I just said. Give me a second and let me decide if I believe it. Turns out I did. I've had fellow Christians tell me that they don't think the moral argument is very persuasive. Really, we should be using, I don't know, the transcendental argument or the ontological argument. Uh, well, number one, you don't need a philosophy degree to understand the moral argument. <laughs> I think the moral argument is eminently clear 
and eminently appealing to everyday people in a way that some of the other more philosophical arguments for God's existence are not. And that's one of the reasons why I use it. So I'm going to draw things to a close. That is my presentation of the moral argument. So as I said right at the outset, virtually nothing is needed to persuade this generation that objective moral values exist. All that leaves us to do is to make what I think are some pretty straightforward observations. Greed and exploitation of the vulnerable would be wrong, regardless of whether or not it conformed to our cultural values. Engaging in acts of terror and violence against civilians because of your political denunciation of their leaders is wrong, regardless of what your national or religious leaders say, and regardless of whether or not you have declared war on them. I would add, belittling, hating, and mistreating people just because they're different from you is wrong. I could go on, but I don't need to. You know these things, and more importantly, so do your neighbors and your fellow citizens who do not believe that God exists. So they already know enough to get a foot in the door of introducing them to their creator. And thus concludes the presentation of the moral argument. Now, next in this series of talks on apologetics was to be uh, the minimal facts approach to the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus, which was the next talk that I gave. But actually, it's, it's virtually identical to a podcast episode that I gave on that very subject. So I won't give it again. You go back and listen to it if it interests you. Um, the next talk I'm going to give, which is the third part in the podcast series on these talks, is really the fourth talk from the talks as they were given while I was away. And that is a talk that addresses the question, okay, so if there are such good reasons to believe, why do so many people reject them? And I think that's an important one. It's important because when you first become really enthusiastic about apologetics, it's easy to become discouraged. And I think it's important simply from the point of view that there are some really important uh, psychological and theological truths involved in understanding this uh, that are just good to know in general. So that's what I'm going to be talking about next time. And until next time, this is your host signing off. Glenn People says goodbye from another episode of... <laughs> <laughs>